Hi, and welcome to the first HSJ Health Check podcast of 2021. Since we last recorded in the week before Christmas, COVID cases in the UK have been rising sharply, with England entering into another national lockdown. In this podcast, we're going to try and distill what's happening now, what does this actually mean for the NHS, and how it differs to past winters, which are always um, a massive struggle. Um, a lot of the headlines have been focused on um, London and the southeast due to the prevalence of the new COVID variant um, in this particular bit of the country. Um, so I think a good place to start the discussion would be um, with uh, Ben Clover, who's um, our um, one of our London correspondents. And I should have said we're also joined by Deputy Editor Dave West and um, correspondent Matt Discombe. Um, but Ben, to start with, um, do you think you could give us an overview of what the situation is in London at the moment? Hi. Um, so the situation in London, as described by um, the the managers running, running services, um, they tend to use, they've already tended to use words like overwhelmed, busiest ever, that kind of thing, um, you know, worse than a normal winter already. Uh, kind of, not only worse than a normal winter, but busier with COVID patients than um, than they were in the first peak. Um, the good news is sort of the to talk to people sort of along the whole pathway from from ambulance all the way out the other side to sort of step down beds and London converted the Royal National Orthopaedic Hospital, an orthopaedic hospital, uh, into a sort of step down facility, um, which is working quite well, apparently. That process is working quite well, I'm told, kind of the flow through it is pretty good, but it just cannot keep up with capacity, with demand, sorry, it cannot, cannot keep up with the just the sheer amount of people coming into the system. So just to go through the go through the pathway from from the start, it's not all rosy, there's like quite a lot of pressure on ambulance services. Um, and I've been hearing about ambulance services having uh, starting to run short on the on the specific uh, oxygen cylinders that they carry to convey these patients um, and that's to take them to a hospital if they need that um, but we'll also come back to the ambulance service in a minute because in the first wave most of the uh, most of the well all of the trusts but most of the regions sorted out uh, systems whereby no one hospital should get overwhelmed because they'll all share their information and transfer people over. So at any given moment really in London there's probably an ambulance run by the LAS or by one of the specialist teams they've contracted with that is conveying someone who's like deeply uh, unwell on oxygen to another unit. Um, you know those those things are whizzing across town the whole time um but hsj reported i think it was last week about having to send people out of london um, potentially as far as yorkshire to cope with the demand um but yeah at the other end of kind of a community discharge uh the the beds that are sort of controlled in any way by local authorities that that link is quite good we're told where there are sort of emerging issues that um, one of my colleagues, Sharon, has been reporting on today. Um, but the but the really big thing is just the the projections that uh, that we reported this morning. Uh, and this morning is is, is Thursday, um, showing that in two weeks, uh, under even the most optimistic of the three scenarios, 
um, we're going to be looking at a real deficit specifically in critical care beds, but also in the general and acute bed base. Um, so yes, every winter is tough, um, but this winter is especially tough. And I don't know I mean, if you want, I can go into sort of some of the specifics of what of what that's going to mean. Mm. Uh, the kind of so I mean, just to take let's take the middle scenario, right? Um, it's not the most optimistic, not the least optimistic, and this is projected for j uh, just under two weeks' time. You're looking at a London's got 1,661 critical care beds um, when it's flexed up, right? And under the the medium scenario, we'll have like a deficit of 665. Now, in practice, you can the the actual bed is like it can often be a misleading way to think of it because the because what's what you need is the staff to make sure. I mean, yes, there there are technical things and equipment things, but lines that need to go into people. But in practice, um, people are already saying they're having to make uh, sort of crisis medicine style decisions, um, rather than the, the what we're used to, which is every, every patient will get exactly the care they need. So kind of rationing of care um, and kind of even further stretched uh like critical care critical care nursing ratios which are supposed to be one to one and uh i believe i believe have been kind of officially flexed and will unofficially flex even further um and that's before we even get on to the effect on everything else hospitals do mm. um so yeah so maybe you could help help a bit with that as well ben around um elective care and cancer care. I mean, we, we've seen some quite alarming stories this week of um, disruption and cancellation in cancer care, which is obviously the kind of the final thing that everyone's trying to protect. Yeah, yeah. So in the first wave, um, there was all these terrible decisions um, people who do the urgent stuff had to, had to make. I mean, not just the urgent stuff, but kind of, but specifically urgent stuff. So like uh, cardiac surgery and like urgent cancer surgery and some people might be aware of these terms, other people not, but they basically had to divide the that that waiting list, that workload into priorities. I mean, in practice, stuff was always prioritised, um, but it, here it's very urgent because it, it, it decides who gets the care fundamentally. So P1, the most urgent, is this patient needs treatment within three days. Um, and P1 patients are still getting treated within three days. So like NHS England, London are not lying when they say people are still receiving urgent cancer surgery. They are, right? But it's the mass of P2 people um, who 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 are defined as your condition will get worse within four weeks. Um, we, we expect it'll get worse within four weeks. And, and let's be clear, like this is cancer, right? So that might not always mean you move up a stage, like one being the first stage of cancer, four being like the um, the, the very worst the terminal um, but in some cases it will be um, so from the people I've spoken to just this morning there's probably about 500 odd people across London in the P2 list who don't have an appointment who don't who are who are waiting and who the the oncologists say yeah this will progress um, in four weeks so I mean, I've written before about when we'll see show up in the data, mm. the terrible effects that's going to have on on 
sort of early mortality on on lives lost on all of that and actually there is more that could be done about that that, that isn't being done at the moment so um last time in april nhs england london would was quite proud that it could say actually we did more cancer surgery April 2020 than we did April 2019 because they'd block book that capacity mm. um that has not happened this time uh because it what why it, is that sorry well it, it looked like it was empty a bunch of the time yeah so block contracted no no one's particularly incentivized you know there was a lot going on <laughs> but it <laughs> but it could have looked um I, I guess they have, in, in the meantime, managed to get back cancer activity pretty well without that help, I suppose, and you know, between the first wave and this. The yeah, yeah, but, but well, I mean, there's still a long, long way to go on recovering that position. Like, kind of, they didn't, not everything is caught up from the first wave yet, and kind of, uh, and, and, the, and the cancellations for this wave, when they are added on, will be pretty significant as well. But the... I mean, that's not even been modelled yet, as far as I've heard. But the, but at the moment, as I understand it, like the, and we're talking like cancer surgeries, which can be things like brain cancer, can be things like brain surgery. Um, they have to be done in the most specialist um, hospitals. So kind of like the the inner London uh, private healthcare things, which which I'm, I'm told about kind of 30 to 40 percent of the workload is being picked up and sent there on sort of spot contracts but um there is still going to be some lifestyle procedures some much less urgent work done in private hospitals right now for rich people while <laughs> nhs patients who are who are just waiting while their disease avoidably progresses mm. um don't get the treatment and yeah i think it's interesting to talk about the sort of choices that are going to have to be made or are being made um and the, the options that they that are available in this you know looking at a situation we remember might remember from march and april thinking about the nhs hospitals being overwhelmed and what does that really mean yeah. and it, it sort of didn't you know clearly there was a it was a very extreme situation for some but it, it didn't really happened because electives was cancelled en masse and there was a few two or three weeks of preparation to put huge efforts into discharging patients and um, emergency activity reduced quite a lot because people were adhering to lockdown and not get so they weren't getting ill or injuring themselves people were staying away from hospitals people were taking their relatives out of hospital if they could um, all kinds of things which um, and then the, the lockdown was quite effective so there wasn't quite the peak that uh, had been feared um whereas um this so we were so so they weren't overwhelmed whereas in this time we're now again talking about the actual the reality of um of hospitals being overwhelmed in london in particular and the sur and surrounding areas mm -hmm. and uh and thinking about what that what that really means and the options available um and i think there are some kind of buttons that haven't been pressed like you know ben's clearly talking about one there um, about the, why are we not in, uh, contracting the private sector in the same way that we did and I you know I, I don't know what Ben thinks but it some of it comes down to sort of government and politics and the treasury and what are they things they seem to be not actually doing this time and we we published a story um, by Sharon Brennan a, a few um, this morning about um, about this about the, the stuff about discharge and getting people out into social care and clearly social care was a big um one of the big catastrophes of the first wave in, the, in this country and and elsewhere but there was um a big 
a sort of very uh, kind of well-funded and um, decisive policy about um, getting people out of hospital, mostly to their own homes, but some to social care. And some of that caused, um, you know, was part of the disaster that happened in social care. But this time there's not actually even the funding there for some things that could be done without, you know, if done in the right way, it could be done without disaster to actually get some patients who are, um, you know, could be discharged into social care. They're well enough for that to happen, considering the extreme circumstances the NHS is under. And it seems like, again, the Treasury or government or lack of will is, is still being a bit of a blocker there um mm -hmm. but perhaps i don't know what it's interesting to think of other other options there is cancelling that more and more urgent and more and more um more and more um uh, pressing surgery but you think well is that is that really morally justified even even to free up space for for covid patients yeah. uh, are there any other and, options i don't know <laughs> no well, i was just going to say well there's surely not maybe this is naive but surely the um an agreement must be reached with the the private sector again i don't know it just seems like they're in such dire straits what 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 else can be done um i don't know whether there's an appetite for that at all well, i think i think it, the, the case is increasingly like you can we can't surely go into a second wave with less resource mm. um than we did on the first one that would seem very bizarre and like and sorry i should have been clear on saying like what what does oh, what does NHS being overwhelmed I mean what does hospitals being overwhelmed I mean it's kind of yeah. kind of in in the northern Italy sense it's someone is brought into a hospital needing ventilation doesn't get it and dies mm -hmm. kind of uh, and we did avoid that first time round but the the price paid was in all of the people who will now die of cancer or die earlier of cancer than they than they were going to because mm -hmm because they didn't get the treatment that they needed or because they didn't come in, um, they didn't go, they didn't get referred by the GP, kind of like all, all of that is still in the post and it's not, mm. it's a lot less visible than someone is brought in in an ambulance, needs ventilation, doesn't get ventilation, dies, um, mm. but it, but you know. Was someone, I heard a, um, a sort of political kind of journalist commentator on on a rival podcast which I won't name talking about sort of <laughs> facilities which you know the state must provide uh, you know for sort of provider of last resort or whatever that that just the state has failed if it doesn't provide certain facilities and in a way well that should provide pro include urgent cancer care but it probably probably the thing that people think of first actually is you know urgent emergency care isn't it which you know is how covid uh, which yeah. COVID care is, so I suppose that's it, it does come to the top of the priority, even if that's not necessarily the right kind of ethical um, decision. And is there still the message being pushed um, that sort of was not straight away in the first wave, but to still that the NHS is still there for you? Yeah, well, it is, isn't it? And that, you know, that's a kind of another button that could be pressed is to go. And there's been a lot of discussion um, in among NHS leadership and and people around that mm. pretty since Christmas about, you know, shouldn't the NHS England be being a lot more vocal about how bad the situation is? You know, this kind of where Simon Stevens then where's Steve Powers, etc., um, kind of uh, sort of declaring quite how bad things are and encouraging, allowing rather than banning the NHS locally to talk about 
how bad things are, mm. um, you know, or in a kind of internal NHS policy sense, shouldn't they be kind of pushing the bed, big red buttons which were pressed in March to say like just stop, you know, everything because a lot of a lot of uh, routine care has been cancelled, but there are mm. things still going now which yeah. which were cancelled in the spring, and of course that's a big, you know, the NHS was really really keen to, uh, and so with the people using them really really keen to be able to keep other services going, but it does mean mm. that you can't free up quite so much other resources to go and go and help with with all that um but yeah the minute you know the message is that nhs services are there for you if you need to invest if you need investigation of a potential um sort of cancer concern or if you need emergency care um so so although i think that emergency admissions are emergency attendances are pretty well down on this time of year for normal but um but they're, they're not mm. as low as they were in the first wave um and and so that is there will be some people in hospitals now thinking actually we would rather a firmer message of please unless you know a firmer message that we are under so much pressure that we would really rather you stay away and if you can mm-hmm. and obviously i mean we started talking about london and, and the southeast but it's impossible to um it's always going to be impossible to um prevent the new strain from spreading uh, beyond that and um i think it would be quite interesting to just touch on what what's happening elsewhere um and perhaps what we could see um and um, as i said we're joined by matt as well matt you cover the um the northeast and um also cumbria um where we've seen i think it was the um um a hospital trust up there saying that they're unable to provide comprehensive health care at the moment because of the pressure they're under. Um, are you seeing kind of a similar situation as the one that um, Ben's talked about in London? Um, well, I, th- I think they are um, expecting it certainly to get worse. They are um, many hospitals in the region are certainly very busy, as you would expect, um, mm-hmm. but not um, maybe at London levels yet is what i understand but the figures really are only pointing uh, one way at the moment as they are um i suppose for the rest of the country um just to kind of touch upon um i mean ben ben talks about the critical care situation in london mm. um talk, talking about it nationally and you know um which which uh, which obviously the northeastern country is part of but we're, we're we're seeing around a dozen patients per day being transferred between icus across um many regions um many of these are within the same region um but in the case of say um north cumbria they're uh, having to go much further afield in some pla- in some cases to scotland and uh, to dumfries um and this is this is happening also from from london outwards as well as as ben said um this is happening every day and t- t- typically uh, transfers of this can't happen very rarely um and i know that's about north, the north but just to touch on london yeah, just very sure. quickly um the the impression I've been given is hospitals in the southwest, which maybe went hit as bad as in previous waves, um, have so far been seen by kind of local um, critical care teams as the the places where patients are would ideally go um, from from London and Kent if they have to, to 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 travel hundreds of miles just to to receive that intensive care. But obviously. You know, as we've as we've seen, um, south the southwest is coming under um, increased pressure as well. Um, so, you know, it beg, begs the question whether that that'll be a, a, a rethink there. Um, so, to go back to 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 the north uh, east, yeah, north 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 Cumbria has basically triggered an alert saying that it's unable to 
uh, deliver comprehensive care um, and you know many hospitals uh, I understand have, uh, have, have cancelled electives or are about to um, imminently um, I mean uh, in the northeast in particular we're looking at you know County Durham and Darlington um, mm. between 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 the in, in terms of publicly available figures between Boxing Day and the 30th um, the amount of COVID inpatients went up by 51 which is uh, which is pretty stark and I know North East South East Gateshead they're, they're under increasing increasing pressure in particular too um, so like, like like many regions I, yeah, it's, it's very very busy it's not getting better it's getting worse um, and they're just waiting to see if they uh, they, they end up um, in a similar position or anywhere near what London is facing right now. It's it's um, it's uh, it's pretty scary times. Mm, thanks for that, Matt. No, it's um, it's interesting. And, and, and Dave, um, we spoke a bit before this just around, obviously, at the end of October, November, we were seeing, well, Liverpool was the epicentre of, of, of the pressure, the COVID pressure in Manchester as well. Um, and just just wondering what the situation's like there now. What's the what's the forecast in the northwest? Um, yeah, they did manage to come down. Places like Liverpool mm. and Manchester managed to come down quite a lot through um, November, but then um, and and the early December, but then started rising again in um, particularly Liverpool started rising again in kind of mid to late December in terms of hospital admissions. The majority of the northwest is lower in occupancy terms than um, you know than these heavily affected areas that we're talking about. Um, but there are exceptions. Um, Cheshire has remained pretty high, and I saw um, there uh, the Cheshire um, Chester Hospital's chief executive tweeting, sort of quite exasperated that they were. She was finding it particularly hard to get the population there to understand that they were under pressure, under you know fairly equivalent pressure to places in the in the southeast and east. Even though mm. that's not the centre of what's on the news at the moment, so it's particularly frustrating for trying to get adherence to Cheshire. And I think um, you know, like Matt said, Cumbria, uh, North Cumbria is an exception as well because they've for whatever reason seems to have got a particularly early bout of this of the mutant yeah. strain which is you can see in hospital admissions and occupancy is bringing North Cumbria up to a similar level as and North Cumbria has had a fairly mm. pretty rough ride from Covid all the way through from Absolutely. the beginning I would say. Um, in terms of behaviour there just around what people are doing in terms of lockdown or in terms of how, attending departments? Uh, no, no. What, so. I, I think she's talking about lockdown behaviour okay. so you know in a way um, you know, it's it's we it's not really a hospital's job to you know directly to try and do something about that. But but no. of course, all people working in hospitals are really frustrated about it and want to, course, want to yeah. tell the story to get their get their uh, population locally to 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 to, to follow lockdown rules. Um, but other parts of the country, yeah, I mean, there are lots of places of which I think resonate with what Matt was saying about sort of Newcastle, Gateshead, where they've kind of got quite low numbers, but they're looking at the speed that they are now rising from a low base and it you know it can um the number of patients in hospital in some of these places is sort of doubling in a week which is where you you get pretty concerned that like there's pretty been pretty steep in dorset and um talk in cornwall as well areas which have largely been spared um the worst of covid but um but they're mm. now seeing quite rapid growth so obviously they're trying to prepare and it, it brings back this sense of um you know, is this a, a national incident again, like the first wave, um, which ever since the end of the first wave, 
what the NHS has tried to do nationally is treat it as a regional issue, a regional incident, which yeah. um, because in during October, September, October, November, it was it was really a uh, mainly a thing for the northwest Yorkshire and the northeast, and so other areas they were very keen kept going as per normal provided all other services um you know kept kept the rates of elective care going now it feels a bit more like um due to whether it's due to the mutant uh, strain or just due to it being actually winter now or, or what it's it feels like it may be becoming a full national incident in the next few weeks although there's obviously comments from people in the northwestern Yorkshire and so on saying well you weren't quite behaving like this when when we had these levels of occupancy but mm. I think we're in a slightly different situation slightly more severe situation now and over the next few weeks. Mm. And what what would that actually mean if a national incident? To become more national? Yeah what would that be like? I don't know maybe Ben would want to come in as well about because I saw your tweet about you know cushion sort of incident be declared but um, I, I think it I think it goes back to this thing about um, well, in the first wave, we saw national guidance issued requiring people just setting out a whole load of things which the NHS should stop. That included like non-clinical stuff like all kinds of meetings and procedural processes and, you know, suspending financial rules and things. Um, but create and some non-clinical things like a list of community health services which should be suspended and those which had to be kept going and, and that sort of thing. So, But I think it gives a kind of it also introduces, I think, different um, methods of managing the situation so at the moment you know we were hearing a couple of days ago from a sort of uh, a system leader saying well we're all our chief execs in the system are getting together kind of pretty much every day and just trying to do everything we can but they didn't feel that there was also a sort of regional um that the regional level of the nhs was pulling together and trying to have that level of urgency um kind of you know cells and things like that uh, to, which could make decisions very rapidly and technically the nhs is in a level four incident i think they that was in reintroduced somewhere around november um but some of the things that came with that in the first wave don't seem to be being being done. The kind of level of, uh, mm. of urgency and style of decision making, and perhaps the ability to perhaps ability and willingness to support neighbouring systems and things like that isn't quite there. Mm. Don't know, Ben. Do you... I mean, I've I've had people um, since tweeting that have a go at me, kind of going, ah, that would just mean we have to have a load more like useless conversations with uh, with you know regional tiers that, that don't actually do anything um i, th I think it, it would look a little bit different if you were to, to go back to them again like the cancer surgeons the surgeons who who can't get their lists um don't like literally don't have the facilities to develop like, like they might have the staff um but you don't have the facilities to the literal estates to go and do your listing um you know, if you if you declare a major incident, you know, in, in a sense, what difference does it make? Yeah, I, I take the point. People are already, you know, making the practical decisions about, look, we don't need to do this, this set of community procedures or we don't need to. We can defer that, you know, this is what the people who, who work in hospitals do all the time. Um, but but yeah, the leadership from a little higher up to kind of go, yes, we will buy in this key set of extra resources that kind of thing would make a difference or yeah like, that's we, or we will buy in a load of like extra care home beds uh, which are out there um that would make a, a practical difference you know mm. 
I think the thing that jumps out for me is the how can you you also need staff to do this and I think um that is going to just be a real sticking point I think we've seen sickness has been um pretty high and high from COVID and um obviously as the vaccination program goes on that will, will hopefully make a difference um but it's sort of that immediate need for staff and for specialist staff as well it's been a problem the whole you know the whole time and the NHS was in a bad position to start with um so I think and what's yeah. your take from uh, Annabelle from the workforce point of view about sort of the level of redeployment because that you know was really the big yeah almost maybe the big feature of the first wave was that, that there was actually enough staff around because despite high levels of sickness uh, so many other things stopped that there, there were you know in some senses enough staff yeah I don't think things as we said before things haven't stopped in quite the same way so there is redeployment but just not to the same degree um I, that's my take on it um I think it depends where you work as well I know that in London there's been a lot of redeployment and um but other bits other bits of the country slightly less so so I think there is like a real real sort of regional um disparity um I think um particularly as Matt was talking about kind of the pressures on ITU that's obviously the real um really challenging area and um lots of very um vocal um, ITU nursing leaders and critical care nursing leaders um, kind of speaking out and saying we just there we don't have the staff and um, talking about sort of frustrated tweets from kind of surgeons going to kind of help nurses and the sort of a frustration from nurses going well you're not you're not a specialist like we need more specialists um, so it's a sort of constant frustration um, and there's not a quick fix I mean we reported this week that um, the nursing regulator was allowing overseas nurses to join the workforce without completing their final clinical um, assessment. They did the same in March um, and it resulted in about 2,000 additional nurses. Um, but where these nurses are needed are areas where the pressure is incredibly high and the roles are going to be really challenging. So there's sort of a, a well-being um, question there. You know, you can't just put people who have never worked in the NHS before into a, a just a, a war zone. I don't really know how to describe it as you know. It's just I think it's it's, it's really really tricky. Um, and then just I think finally it's been very it's been a very um, bleak podcast. <laughs> but I suppose the situation is pretty bleak. But just a bit of positivity. We didn't have an April with obviously the vaccine, and that is what everyone is sort of clinging on to desperately at the moment. Um, and um, obviously a challenge operationally, also for the workforce lots of vaccinators are needed um the sort of bureaucracy behind it incredibly challenging um maybe dave you can give us a quick update um on how things are going on the vaccination front mm, a positive one like, yes all, please yeah all going flawlessly only, and, bad, uh, bad things, so. yeah <laughs> i think i do i suppose in that uh light there clearly are a lot of frustrations of people as maybe is inevitable with such a big and rapid program frustrations like how can we get the staff how do we redeploy them when they're being pulled in various different directions um urgently as you talk about in your column for this week annabelle um uh, and it frustrations frustrations with supply and and you know incoherence over like you know we're told we're going to get this many um, doses uh, today or next week or whatever, and then they don't actually come. 
Um, but um, I think that probably we're still we talked about vaccines on the podcast a bit before Christmas, didn't we? And saying you know, there's quite a lot of these kind of things are bound to be a bit be quite difficult and bumpy. Um, and the bigger question is still like one or two weeks away. Can they get up to the volumes of, um, you know, doing um, doing two million a, a week? Um, and I think I mean, I still think that the that the kind of operational um, ability to get to that level is there is going to be really strained when in the areas where it's so busy with COVID that they find hard to get clinical staff over to those um, in those areas. But I think that's why I'm sort of a bit sceptical about this story about, oh, well, it's so hard for a so-and-so volunteer to sign up because i mean it doesn't if that is proven to be the barrier to to getting vaccines in people's arms as as they say then that would be a terrible thing but actually the barrier to getting vaccines in people's arms probably is the fact that there isn't any vaccine enough vaccine to put in people's arms yet so you wouldn't really want the director of sorting out vaccines to be spending time making it easier for um, volunteers to sign up when actually they need to be spending time uh, and their resource uh, getting these batches of, of Oxford AstraZeneca signed off by the MHRA and getting them out to people. Um, so I think maybe there's a danger of um, uh, people focusing on minutiae in the wrong the wrong areas. Clearly, um, you know, if they can't, if the NHS delivery can't keep up with the supply, then it will be in for a, an enormous um, uh, mountain deservedly of, of criticism, despite everyone doing their best. But you've got to, you can't just do your best, you've got to actually uh, keep up with supply on this occasion. Um, and, um, but I think you know, sort of, I'm, I still believe that the main constraint is the supply of the vaccine and, you know, this ability to produce it and um, and sign it off and, and so on. So I think, I, I reckon they'll uh, meet this, um, assuming the supplies there, which it looks yeah. like it just about is, I think they'll make this target of, you know, 13 million by, um, by mid-February, like, mm relatively comfortably it's just that it's all of most much of it's going to start in about a week or two's time getting the volume there so it's going to be quite um uncomfortable for the next week or so getting up to the, the run rate that's needed and do we think the mass vaccination centers will they be the sort of the the key the key player in getting get, reaching that target um i think that it was still most the biggest chunk could still be done in primary care um, mm. now they've been permitted to get through all health and social care staff quite a lot's going to be done in hospital hubs as well in this first phase um, mm. uh, but the mass vaccination centers are due to start coming on stream next week and the week after and the week after that mm. I think um, so they'll play a sort of reasonably a biggish part but but not not the biggest part probably Mm, and it's much harder for that because primary care you know talking about staffing no mm. no nhs staff currently work at um you know uh, epsom Racecourse or whatever um so yes. they don't they don't have an, any existing workforce or, or an existing sort of um uh, existing kind of lines to get workforce whereas primary care has it obviously they're busy with stuff but they have it and they're experienced in bringing people in and uh you know they, they i think that that's that's whereas um the mass vaccinations and also as do hospitals and um other nhs trusts whereas the mass vaccination sites are starting from a blank slate so it's going to be harder yeah. to get everything up and running there and pharmacies of course are sort of waiting to see how many could be approved yeah. for vaccine vaccination which could make a yeah a real difference in terms of access i mean that makes sense um total sense um so annabelle you've got a line in championing community farm i do yeah <laughs> in, exactly exactly um 
Well, all right. I think that's something to be positive about. I think it'll be interesting to see how things are going on that front next week. Um, but it is time to draw things to a close this week. I've been your host, Annabelle Collins. Thanks very much for joining. Um, and to listeners, if you haven't already subscribed, please do. It'll help other people find us. Um, and just a quick reminder, the podcast is available every week on the hsj.co.uk website across all main podcast channels. And please do get in touch with any comments about the discussion or something you think we should be talking about. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week.